And let me make a few comments while you're turning to John chapter 9. We'll just brief John chapter 9. title of my message this morning is sort of a colloquial, a saying that we have. I'm going to title this sermon, Let Me Tell You One Thing. I knew you would like that, but I'm not much for titles and not real clever with them. So it's just the title is, let me tell you one thing. I wonder how many times you've heard people say that or how many times you have used that. Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's not that there isn't more things to tell or that you can't think of anything else to tell. But concerning what you're talking about at that moment, it's sort of like the big deal thing to tell. I'll tell you one thing. Or parents get after their children sometime and said, let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm going to tell you clear. And then they, they start that. Or, well, one thing I know for sure. And we use this phrase a lot. I thought of the many, many different times in our lives that we use that just as a way of saying I'll tell you one thing, if it starts raining, you better watch out. I'll tell you one thing, if that crowd is there like I was there last week, boy, you wish you hadn't gone. And it's like, I want to emphasize this particular point because it seems to be a necessary thing we feel like it's necessary to say. We need to impart some kind of information to somebody. It's kind of like a priority. It holds itself up there to be done or to be said. Speaking about priorities for just a moment, priorities are important. They're things that need to be stressed. God gives all of us priorities in this life. He gives them to us. We are pointed towards a kind of life that we must put a priority on. As a dad, as a husband, as a member of a church... As a worker somewhere, whatever we're doing, there are some things, certain things that are priorities. Are we not told to pray? And yet not everybody does because it's not a priority. We don't put a lot of emphasis on it. We don't stress it. We wouldn't say this. I'll tell you one thing. We ought to pray every day. We don't say that because we don't. Or attendance in a church or being a part active in a body of believers if there's one where you are. To me, it's a priority to be a functioning, contributing member of a body of believers. It is to me. I don't think God saved me to just drift around. I'm not a cruisomatic where you just go around and you just belong to the big church and that's the big eternal church somewhere. And this one here is just a little church. You can belong to it if you want to. If you don't want to, you don't have to. I don't believe that. I believe that everybody belongs somewhere. But see, now that's got to be a priority. It was for me. I came here from another church because I didn't feel like I belonged there, but I, I felt like I belonged here. And so in response to what I believe, I did a lot of work and left a lot behind me, but it was a priority. It's something I must do. It's necessary. See, if you don't have priorities of some sort in your life, You'll grow up not getting a whole lot done, drifting through life, and probably learn how to complain and grumble and find fault with a lot of people who don't do things the way you think they should. But a person who is busy dealing with things in his life has a system where he deals with things. He puts things where they should be. Getting to work on time. Doing a job for my boss 
as though my boss was Jesus. Wouldn't steal from him, wouldn't cheat him, wouldn't cut corners because I know the Lord watches me. Priorities. Things that improve your position before the Lord as far as a faithful person. You're doing right. You're trying to do right. You're putting things in right order. And this is the way it should be. It's preferential treating of things. You put things where they should be. We can't do well as Christians if we don't do that. But back to the one thing. Back to one thing. In John chapter 9, I'm I'm sure you're there by now, in verse 24 through 34, we have this narrative of a blind man whom Jesus healed. And when Jesus healed him, the Pharisees were trying to find out, like they would today, how did he do it? It's a very humorous story in some ways. Verse 24, they again called the man that was blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. And he answered and said, well, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know. Now, that's not the only thing he knew, was it? But he said, Concerning what we're talking about here, one supreme thing that I know. I don't have to guess at this, ask questions about it. One thing I absolutely am convinced and assured of is that I was blind, but now I can see. Now, if this man was a sinner, whoever he was, I don't know if he was or not, but I know this. I was blind, but now I can see. Then they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He could have said, well, he came up to me and he pried the left one open real good. And then he spit in it. See, people want some kind of an explanation for miracles. Make it as natural as possible. Well, probably his condition was going to be... They can't accept the fact that some things are just miracles. They couldn't. The same spirit was in these guys here is the same spirit that's in the world today because devils don't get older. When one person dies, they go into somebody else. And they said to him what they say today. Well, how did he do it? And he said in verse 27, I've already told you once. That's my way of saying that. I've already told you once. Do you want to hear it again because you want to follow him? Oh, boy. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, You're his disciple. We're Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke unto Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he's from or who he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he's opened my eyes. This wonderful thing has happened, and you're trying to figure out who he is. Well, he opened my eyes. Now, we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. I spoke that to a Catholic nun once who I questioned about praying on the rosary all day long about the Hail Mary full of grace thing at the end of that little thing. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Now and at the hour of our death, I said to her, if you're confessing that you're a sinner and God heareth not sinners, what good is it you to do that? And I remember she was an older lady. I was being very respectful and said it real nice. And she said, well, I've never seen that before. Isn't it a shame and a tragedy? We'll get again to this in a minute. That people can spend their whole life in a religious environment, in a religious setting, and never know what the Bible says. 
But those are easy people to control, too. But anyway, he goes on, and you know the story about this, that here was God who healed a man, and they were questioning how did this happen. We don't know who is it. And he says, look, this is our message today. One thing I know. I was blind. I was born blind, never could see. We know that from history, nobody who was ever born blind has ever been healed from it. He earlier said, but this man, whoever he is, I don't know him either. But I know that he prayed for me and my eyes were open. Now, that's all I know. But that's enough for me to rejoice. Now, he met Jesus later on in the chapter and so forth. So let me share with you today some one things. One things that are important things, priority type things in the Bible. First, I want you to go to Joshua. Joshua chapter 23. Because God wants us to know what He puts the emphasis on. Would you agree with me that if God emphasizes something in the Bible, we should too? Well, I'm glad. Joshua chapter 23. Let's read verse 14. Joshua's at the end of his life. They're in the promised land. Land has been divided. His ministry is essentially done. That for which God raised him up and sent him to the world has been accomplished. And he knows it. And he knows it's time to get out of the way and take his place in history. And he says, And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls, notice this, not one good thing has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God spoke concerning you. Not one thing. Now, what kind of a statement is that? Here we are talking to a nation, a nation that came out of a nation, the slaves in a nation of Egypt. He brought them out with a mighty hand. The whole world is astounded that a bunch of slaves have become a nation. They cannot be defeated. They cannot be stopped. Their God, which they know not, helps them. He throws fire down from heaven. He makes them to conquer a few, to conquer many. That Gideon could deal with 30,000. What kind of God is this? But see, God made all these promises going in. I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this. You trust me. Remember the thousands of promises. Joshua chapter 1. If you do this, and you do this, and you do this, then you'll experience this, this, and this. All you got to do is make the right choice here. God is the one who alone can make a promise and keep it. We make promises that we can't always keep. That's why James says, you who say tomorrow we'll do such or such, you don't even know if you'll be here tomorrow. You can't say you'll do something tomorrow, I'll pay you back tomorrow. You don't even know you'll be here tomorrow. It's best not to have to pay back. All right, so Joshua says, you know, God put us in this land. The people whose land we're in now has been developed for us. The wells have been dug. The green fields have been planted. They were gifted farmers. God allowed them to be that because the wealth of the center is laid up for the just. And he's brought us in with a mighty hand. But he told us he would. He just told Shelbyville Christian Assembly and any other assembly who wants to listen that the book you're holding in your lap 
has 8,000 promises in it that God who cannot fail has made. Not one promise has ever failed when the conditions for that promise have been met. I don't care how much you say, I'll say it again. Not one promise that God has ever made has ever failed when the conditions for that promise to be done has been met. Quoting a promise doesn't mean you meet the conditions of it. God did not say, if you will quote the Bible, I will do what it said. But he mentions words like diligence, heeding, observing, keeping, walking, doing, acting. Living like what an invisible God has said that he will do it because that's who he is. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is he the son of man that he should repent. If he said it, he will do it. Now, if he doesn't do it, like people say today, well, yeah, there's a lot of promises, but God may not want to. Then he has said things he may not do. Now, if he said things he might not do, then we can't be sure that he'll do what he said. We wouldn't treat our children that way. If we told our children we're going to go on a vacation or go to a fair or to some place that kids want to go Friday afternoon, you would do your very, very level best to go because that's your word. You're doing something you can do and you want them to respond to you and you want to have a good time. You give them a promise. What if it was Friday and it was time to go and, and your kids were taking a nap or doing something else? You said, come on, let's go. And they said, are you really going? Are we really going? I didn't think you meant it. How would a father feel? These kids don't even trust you. They hear what you say. They honor you by listening, but they don't respond to you. See, that's why promises aren't meant. That's why the Bible has all these promises that people are writing books about today and say, well, though he said that, he may change his mind. How could he change his mind if he's already committed himself in his word to saying that God is not a man that he should lie? Numbers twenty three nineteen. If he is a man that he does not lie, then he doesn't change his mind. He made a promise. Joshua said, not one promise that God has made to us has failed. Look around. Look at the land we're in. This was given to us. He said he would give it to us. Look at all these giants down in the valley where the chariots of iron were that we were afraid of and these huge big giants and all. He said, we're in their land. We're here. They couldn't stop us. Because God promised us he would give us the land. He said, if you drive out the inhabitants and so forth, he said, I'll even help you. Now, here we are. And he said one thing. There's a lot of things Joshua could say. But at the hour of his death, time of his departure, leaving this impression on his people, he said one thing you should know. That not one promise that God has made has ever failed us. We have never yet leaned on him or trusted in him to do what he said and him not do it. All these promises. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1? You don't have to turn to it. Verse 20, you know it by heart. All the promises of God. And he's referring to Old Testament promises as he is writing these Corinthians because there was no New Testament then. There's no book like you got. The early church was taught out of the Old Testament. 
God was bringing revelation out of the old to the new. And he said about all those thousands of promises that he made, he said, all these promises are in Christ. Yes and amen. And didn't Jesus say, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it? I'll tell you all one thing this morning. I'll tell you one thing, that God does not fail. That all of his promises are true and that he watches over this word to perform it. Would you go to 1 Kings chapter 8? Let me show you one more verse before we go to the second one thing I want you all to know this morning. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56. In the same vein, the same type of thing. There hath not failed one word, one word of his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. You're talking about a leader who is looking at people who don't know anymore if God will do what he said. There is a church in the world today with a Christian name on it and Christian influence in it. Multitudes of really good people, people who deserve better, that do not know, as I stand here this morning, who do not know whether or not they can fully trust God to do what he said. Now, isn't that true? I think it is. I'm talking about good people who read these things in the Bible and wish it were true. Or they pray all night hoping that if they pray, they by praying will get an answer. That's works. It doesn't work like that. It works by faith. When you pray, Jesus said, believe you have received. Doesn't it say that? You can't impress God with your labors. I mean, if you worked hard and you were, everybody just admired you, he said, you're still an unprofitable servant. There's thousands of promises in the Bible you're holding in your lap. And how many times do people like us who say we believe these promises find ourselves scratching our head afraid of a certain news report or a certain illness running around or a disease or symptoms and, and oh, we kind of get, oh my, and oh, it's as though we've never heard that God has made promises concerning the well-being of your body. One time he even went so far as to say, if you drink any, um, I think that's still in the Bible, and if you drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt you. Why don't people say praise the Lord for that? Why don't people say praise the Lord? Why do they go, eh, well, I don't know about that. Why do you say that? Why would you think that? I know you didn't say that because you've been quiet. But why would you think like that? Has God failed? Is he limited as to what he can do? Has he made a promise he cannot keep? Has he changed his mind? Malachi 3.6, he said, I am the Lord, I change not. Is he or not? Joshua gladly stood there that day and he said, I'm going to tell you all one thing. I'm getting ready to go the way of all the earth. All those before me have gone the same way. It's called death. There's a lot of things I could remind you of, but there's one thing I want you to know. This is really important for you to have in your inward constitution. 
an abiding place in your heart that motivates you that not one good word of his promises fail. That's what he said in 1 Kings 8. Not one word of his promise has ever failed. And many times God has kept his word because he said he would. You can read, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 36, in verse 22 and verse 32, in Ezekiel 36, and you realize that God did a lot of things he did, not because of our faithfulness or our righteousness. He said, you were stiff-necked and stubborn. I did it for my great namesake. I believe today in the nation of Israel that a lot of the, the restoration and the protection and so forth that Israel is experiencing today is not because they're a spiritual nation. They're not. They haven't received Christ as Messiah, and yet they can't get rid of their sins today. They don't know this. They got no priest. They got no temple. No sacrifices as the law required, and they're all under the law. All of them are under the law. And they're without hope until Christ comes because the, the great hope has come and they rejected that. And God is faithful to his people because a long time ago he said, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And one day we'll all, they too, will look back and say, you know, everything that he promised he did. Has he promised protection and healing for us? He has. He has. What if somebody were to tell you today they've been a Christian 35 years and never been to a doctor? Well, you'd raise your eyebrows and say, ah, come on now. Everybody does that. There are probably some that haven't. But could he keep you well that long? In America? Eating fast foods? Whatever else they, people contribute our demise over? Of course. God is great. God is magnificent, wondrous, the Bible calls Him. What He says, He does. He cannot say something and not back it and see to it that it works. But He doesn't make it work just because you read it and then wonder if He will. He does it because you believe what He said. What things soever you desire when you pray, believe. I don't know of a lot of people who believe any of this. Most every Christian in every Christian assembly will acknowledge this. I know very few people who believe it, who really living like it's so. Didn't Jesus say, take no thought? You have a promise? And yet, how many Christians take stress medicine? I heard one the other night. I don't remember the name of it, don't want to know. One of the side effects was heart attacks and strokes. Forget the medicine, stay with the problem. <laughs> the medicine will hurt you, it really will. You know, there is a gospel. There's nothing wrong with me telling you that. That His Word is medicine to our flesh. And yet... So many people really aren't sure if you'll do all of that or not. They're not sure. They're just not sure. Well, how do you get sure? How do we become sure 
certain, steadfast, persuaded, and convinced. How do we do this? Well, point two. Let's go to Luke 10. Martha and Mary. We've all heard that. we got a Martha sitting here this morning. But she's not guilty of this. Luke chapter 10 and verse 42. Well, verse 41. We've got to get to 41 because if Jesus ever mentions your name twice, you're in trouble. Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha, you are careful, troubled, and disturbed about so many things. But look at verse 42. What if I were to say, Jesus said, but I'll tell you one thing. One thing is needful. Now, are there not other things that are needful? Are there not other necessary things like without holiness, no man shall see God? It is needful to be holy. It is needful to love your brother as God loves you. Something that we know little about too, it seems. I mean, that's needful. How can a man love God if he cannot love his brother? If you talk about each other, how can you love God if you don't like your fellow man? Or at least... Love in the sense of accepting him as a human being. See, there's more things that he could say, but he said one thing, Martha, one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part. Now, you know what she was doing. She was sitting at his feet while he was teaching. She could have been in the kitchen helping Martha fix a meal for all of these people. That's what a, probably a proper hostess, as Martha surely was, would have done and shows her consideration, her kindness, and her care about ministering to the culinary needs of her people. But Mary somehow didn't feel like potatoes and soup was nearly as important as the Word of God. That the meat that he was giving out was more important than whatever she was doing in the kitchen. So she made a decision. She made an ethical choice. She said, now, I should be in there with her. She's counting on me to help her. Now, here's Jesus, who is saying something that if I don't hear it now, I might not have a chance to hear the same thing again. He's teaching right now. He's always anointed because he's God. I think I'm going to deal with Martha later on. She ain't going to like this, but I'll just let her hammer on my head. But I'm going to go sit at the feet of Jesus. And she sat there, and Martha said, Would you tell her to get up and come in here and help me? And that's when he said, Martha, let food take care of food. Let the food bury the food. I mean, oh, excuse me. Let, let, let food take care of food. Why, why, just Martha. Martha, listen to me. Only one thing is needful. The word needful means necessary. It can be translated necessary. Only one thing is really necessary, and that's what she's doing. Now, what was she doing? She was being taught. She was listening. She was availing herself to information that was coming from God. She allowed it to come in. She wasn't sitting here and not listening. She came to listen. And so as she listened, she opened up her heart to hear what he is saying as though this is vital. This is essential. I must hear the Word of God. Let me ask you all a question. Is it still needful now? 
then how is it that it doesn't seem to be so needful? You could say, because you're not God. Then I'd have to say, well, you're right about that. Aren't you glad? Aren't you really, really glad? If I was God, we'd be in heaven and it'd be over with. But God uses people. He uses frail, sometimes feeble, sometimes, like Paul said, his speech is contemptible. I'm glad the Bible talks about Paul that way because I feel better. That God doesn't use always use experts. Sometimes he uses a Paul. He doesn't always take the marvelous, charismatic personalities that are so easy to follow and who the smooth. He doesn't use that. Sometimes he just sends ordinary people you wish they would do better. But this is the kind of people that God will use to teach his people. That God can take a vessel, any kind of vessel. I knew a man once... He's called a prophet. I don't have any doubts with all of that stuff. I don't think he ever got out of the third, fourth grade. Very, very, very uneducated, but totally powerful. Was it because of his speech or because of God? Because of God. Anytime there's an anointing with anybody, anytime God anoints a vessel to minister in that anointing, you should hear it. And not go away, well, you know, that's just his opinion of it. People say that about the Bible. Well, you know, Paul wrote this because Paul had a problem with women. I thought all of it was God-breathed. I thought God used Paul. That it's not Paul. It's not Paul's opinion, but it was a hand of Paul that wrote all of this. He uses a personality, but it's the Word of God. That's the way I leave it. You know, it says that because that's what God says. But a lot of people don't see their need. We're busy. We're busy. We're trying to make money, trying to get things set up for tomorrow, even though we don't know if tomorrow will be here. We're trying to get our house secure for this time of life we call old age or something. And we want to get ready. And we're so busy. I'll do it. You know, you don't even know if you'll be here tomorrow. You don't know if there'll be an old age. Sufficient for today is the opportunity that we have today to hear today what God says to us. In the morning when you get up, you got a chance to at least spend a little time praying, maybe a little time reading your Bible. Then as you go about your daily work, you got something on your mind that may come from all of that. You feed yourself. It's a church night, Wednesday night. I'm tired. Maybe you get home a little early, take a quick nap if you can. Pray that God will give you a refreshed mind when you get to church so that you can hear something you really need to hear. And yet we so seldom ever think of it like that. Is it why we often become what the Bible says, dull of hearing? Mary wasn't dull. She wasn't going on the front row while Jesus was teaching. She wasn't nodding her head. She didn't say, well, at least I'm here. What good's that? What good is it to be there if you're not listening? What good is it to be here if nobody's home? I mean, knock on your door and there's no, nobody in there. I'm here. <laughs> Apparently not. What if Jesus said to us, we have heard enough in our lifetime to be spiritually strong, needing help from nobody, having our help. Our help comes from the Lord, not the hills, but from the Lord. 
we have found a way to put into practice the Word of God, and it has brought us health and safety, and we can endure and overcome. Shouldn't we be like that? We can do that. But if we come to here and we don't pay attention, or if we come to here and we're really thinking about tomorrow, or we're too tired, it's been a long day, I just didn't feel like I'm going to get anything out of it, so I stayed home tonight. What if I did that? Come on now, let's be fair. You do it, whoever I'm talking to. What if I did it? Song service over. Song leaders up here getting nervous. Nobody in the preacher's office back there. Somebody call him. Oh, somebody would. <laughs> ring, ring. Bonnie can't drive, so she'd have to stay home too. She wouldn't like that. <laughs> ring, ring. Hello, Brother Hamilton. Yeah. Where are Where are you, man? We're about to have church. Good, good. Everybody will do that. <laughs> Are you, uh, what's going on? Are you going to be here or not? No, I, you know, I woke up this morning. There's leaves all over my yard. I finally got my leaf blower to work. I, I think I'm going to be diligent about getting my leaves out of my yard this morning. <laughs> what about us? you be all right. What if you did that? And I said, where are you? Uh, Brother Tom, I just... What if I did that? You'd be mad at me. Here I am this week. I came here and you're not even here. And I took a shower for nothing. <laughs> Jesus said to Martha, one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. And you know what it is? He said, and Mary has chosen that good part. That's listening and taking it in. And you, how do you finish that verse? which shall not be taken away from her, then what she is getting has an enduring substance to it. It comes to stay. Into my heart. Remember that little song? Into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. That's what I want the Word to do. I want the Word to come in to stay because that's the only thing that I can have in me that the Spirit of God is going to use to deliver me. If I don't have the Word in my heart, what's the Spirit going to use? What am I saying? I'm saying that the, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. Isn't it? If you don't have that sword in you, then what do you fight with? Well, most people don't fight. They get on the phone and call somebody, pray for me, pray for me, I need help. Why don't I have you prayed? I don't know. I think after all these years we've been in church and we struggle like that, all these years, we should be doing better than that. We should really be doing better than that. Nothing supersedes the Word of God in our life. God puts emphasis on nothing like He puts upon His Word. In Psalm 138 and verse 2, it says, He esteems His Word or honors His Word even above His name. In the name of the Lord, that's magnificence in itself. And He said, He esteems His Word even above all of His name. 
What should we do? What should we then do? Should we not also pray that we'll have the same kind of interest? Oh, I do. I pray that we surely would. What did Paul tell Timothy to do as a preacher? He said, in so many words, you're going to find in your preaching experience, in your ministry as God directs you, you're going to find in certain crowds, in certain places, you're going to find hungry people who really want to hear what you have to say. God will direct them to your attention. And they will often be surrounded by people who do not want to hear what you have to say, who don't like what you said, and who try to find fault with what you said so that what you said isn't true. Because if what you say is true, they're guilty. So they don't want what you say to be true because they're not doing what you say. But there are those there who are just like that guy said, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm, I'm, a sinner. I'm guilty. Teach me, Lord. I want to hear it. So Paul said these instructions. He said, preach the word. He didn't say preach programs, preach cool, preach things, and let's just drift along. He said, preach the word. He said, be instant in season and out of season. You're going to have a hostile crowd on occasion or hostile people. And sometimes you're going to have people that will surround and they'll drag it. They'll just drag the word out of you because they want it so bad. Just preach the Word. Trust God with the content. Give it your best. Know what you believe. Study and all of that. Because it pleases God, the Bible says, by the foolishness of preaching. To save those who believe. And today the church has become so educated and so upbeat and modern today that these old-fashioned methods like preaching for an hour... That's not going to work. They say this today. You don't know this. I know this. They say, well, that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't. Then you can close your Bible. Because the Bible says, by the foolishness of preaching, God saves. He said in Romans 10, how can they hear except someone preach to them? And how can they preach except they be sent? This is God's way to bring people into his kingdom. And educate men. So there's better ways. We got all these new nifty movements that are taking place. Movements don't inspire teaching. In my experience, and again, I'm a nothing. Movements inspire onlookers, thrill seekers. Jesus said one time, he said, you're following me because of what? You want to see miracles. You don't want me to talk long because you quit talking and do something. Quit teaching and quit telling us about eternal things. Do something. We came to watch, man, because we are a generation that is given to entertainment. Whether it's the computer or the TV or thousands of arenas. Well, it's now it's every Sunday there's some event. Sunday is not the Lord's day anymore. Sunday is an off day that we do things. It's the time we're in. It's the age that we're in. A calloused church is turning its back on what it should be doing and trying to cater to the whims of the people and give them something on these days or some other event that they could get in without giving them the word. And what will happen to us if we have no word? Well, if we have no word, we have no fight. 
when the war comes, and it will, we fight the good fight of faith, and we wrestle not against principalities of power, but against the rulers of darkness of this world. And it goes on to say you got to have a sword and a shield. If you don't know what they are and you don't have it, you can't win this battle. You'll have to turn to some personality who will pray for you. You'll have to get on somebody's list or tune into some channel to somebody who is an expert at getting you out of trouble. And all they're telling you is you don't need the word anymore. You just need a person. While I'm speaking, it's beginning to crumble. And more and more, those who want to preach the gospel are viewed as poor souls. They don't know that we've gone beyond all of that. Well, some call it this gospel the same old, same old. They say we get tired of sitting in church hearing the same old, same old every week. Hour and 12 minutes every week, just same old, same old. And we, <laughs> yeah, me too, I love it. And, and, and we sing those same old songs. He's all I, why do we keep singing that? Well, wait a minute, what did it say? He's all I need. Oh, I know why you don't want to sing it now. Because he's not all you need. We sang these songs, the joy of the Lord is my strength. No, we sang that back when we first started. We've gone beyond that. Have you heard this new stuff today? You can't hear the words for the noise. The boomity-boom, the clashity-bang, and the wiggling going on. You can't hear the words. Amazing grace. How um, long time ago sweet was the sound. I think it still is. I think it still is. I think it's a pleasure to be able to shut my eyes and sing a hymn I've sang at least in, in my 70 plus years, two or 3,000 times. It's still good. It's still good. Because the message is still true. It is eternal and it never passes away. Amazing grace. My sins, another song says, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise God, praise God, oh, my soul. And somebody said, oh, those old hymns, we don't sing those old hymns anymore. I know that. I know that. I try to listen to what they say, and I can't get it. You know, I was born in yesteryear, you know that. I was born a long time ago before cool was in. It was neat then. It's cool today. A third thing about one thing has to do with your relationship with the Almighty. Turn to Psalms 27. Psalms 27 and verse 4. One thing the psalmist says, have I desired? One thing. I'm sure he desired more. Wouldn't you think he desired more than just one thing? Of course. In verse 4, but one thing stands out. Now here's a psalmist. A man who the Bible says has a heart after God. He spent time, obviously, with God because God drew him into him. He became... Related to God in a spiritual sense. 
God was in his thoughts. Things happened and God made him to see that it's because of God. It's because of my influence in your life that you're blessed. You think of that man, Fallago, whoever he was, 35 years without a, a doctor's bill, and he has to know at some point in his Christian life, it's because of God's promise being fulfilled in your life. This is what God does. doesn't matter who you are, how bad or how chronic the problem was. This is what God does. He could do this. Amen. But this psalmist had that connection. This connection we call a relationship. He knew God in the sense that what he knew affected his life. Some people know things academically and they can pass the test and make A's. Some people know things in their heart and it becomes the way they live. And people think they're fools for living that way, making those choices. I knew a person once who said, why would you not take two aspirins for a headache and be over it instead of having to walk the thing out, trusting God for two days? At the time, I don't think there was any answer for that. It's just that I'm just trying to do it God's way. And then 20 years later, you realize you haven't had headaches anymore. And you don't need those things anymore. You turned away from them and God turned them away from you. And, and he's restored you to, in that area of your life into health. Have you found verse 4? One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One main object, one thing that was especially desired by the psalmist, one thing which has been the object of his constant wish and desire is to find my place in the house of God, to behold the magnificence, the wonder the great appeal, the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire, to have this freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need, and to ask and to seek and to have God minister to you. Are there people like this in the world? Is there anybody like this who just loves to be with the Lord? Who like the quiet moments? who like the rejoicing moments, who like whatever we do in the presence of the Lord, whether I'm by myself in a certain place I like to be by myself, or whether I'm here with other people doing things corporately. Is it possible that a man could get so involved with God this way that this is his great desire in life? What did this same psalmist say, talking about the house of the Lord, inquiring... Was it Psalms 23? As he comes to an end, he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And what's the last part say? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Your two buddies shall follow me all the days of my life. And not only all the days of your life do you have goodness and mercy, but also the promise that goes with it 
and being a conjunction connecting the two, goodness and mercy, with this last one. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't think, as the psalmist would say it, I don't think there is a promise anywhere in the Bible that you could want more than that. You can get things on this earth. I want this. I need this. I want to have this. But in the bigger picture, when all of that down there is done and you come to the end of your life, is there anything more wonderful than entering into the presence of God? I don't think so. But in the meantime, in preparation for that day, all this talk about the house of the Lord and entering into the House of the Lord. Look at Psalms 26 and verse 8. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where your honor dwells. We could call that a good church meeting. If we lift him up, God inhabits, uh, 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 yeah, help me. God inhabits praise. And if we are praising him from our hearts, then the Bible said he inhabits that his Presence is very real there. I think we could be affected by that. I think we would be turned on, as they say, by that and want more of it. We'd want it to happen again. If we had a wonderful meeting one night and the Lord was there, you'd probably wear the same clothes the next time you came sit in the same chair. Preach that same sermon again. We like that because we like stuff like that. But I think you taste and see that the Lord is good and you want to taste a little bit more and see a little bit more of it. And I think it becomes at the place where your heart is occupied with spiritual matters. I want to be in this house. Look at Psalm 65. Just cross over to Psalm 65 and verse 4. I mean, the same psalmist. Blessed is the man whom thou chooseth and causeth to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Can this be? Can this be so? All of you out there, can this be so? Can we have such an attitude? We don't have to work it up, but can we just have this? Can in our daily lives, as we're working towards esteeming God for who He is and seeking first His kingdom and doing all the... Can the effect of all of this desire that we have for Him, can He affect us with wanting more of it? And the more we get of it, does it not change the way we live? The way we relate to each other? Some things that you thought were just, oh, it's terrible. You get to a place where it's nothing. You can overcome anything. They slap you on one cheek, you can turn the other one. You're trusting God. You are there believing that God is going to do what He said. Look at Psalm 84. Same psalmist, Psalms 84 and verse 4. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will still be praising thee. They will still be praising thee. Verse 10 For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
Kentucky's contribution to the government, Alvin Barkley, vice president to Truman, spoke these words and died. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of our God than whatever else he said, and he died. Those are not bad words to leave this life with. Now, that doesn't mean you mean it. He might have just memorized it. I'm not taking away from I'm not making that to be all you have to do. But he obviously knew something about the Bible. The psalmist, we've read five verses here about the importance of the house of God and how we come to this place to acknowledge and relate to God and worship Him. And yet, through the 30-plus years we've been here, sometimes we come in here with no desire to praise. None. They have no desire to worship. And we want to just rest in the fact that we'll say we're dead tonight. You know, if I'm not a song leader. I could be. Who's laughing? I could be. I was one time when we didn't have ukuleles and guitars. Acapella, I mean, it's in Church of Christ. What do you expect? Christian church. If I were a song leader, and I know it's tough. I know it's sometimes it's tough preaching when you feel like nobody's listening, nobody cares. They just want to get up and leave. I found that I can tell myself, this is a call that's on my life. I'm going to preach whether they squirm in their seats or not. Whether it's too long or not, I'm going to say what I came to say, and then you all do what you want to with it. Because that's all I can do. I'm going to sing as though it's me and God in this room. If nobody wants to sing, if we're sitting there like this, not me. I ain't joining y'all. Enough of this, we're dead. Let's just sing like we mean it. Now, if people don't want to sing, sing anyway. If they don't want to hear it, preach anyway. If they don't want to come, preach anyway. Preach, sing, worship. God meets us here. That's why this great building that we're in tonight that everybody wishes in town they had a building like this. <laughs> it ain't the building, folks. It's whether or not God meets His people there. He's met us in homes, basements, storefronts. This church started, best I can remember, with me standing in the hallway. And there's an office here and an office here. And some of them sit on this side and some of them sit on this side. And I was out in the hallway and I preached to them like this here. Remember that? Some of you were here. That's how we start. didn't matter. God met us there. If he hadn't met us there, we wouldn't have gotten here. Fourthly, Galatians chapter 5. Oh, meeting with the Lord. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Remember the psalmist said that? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire besides thee. Remember that? Let me get back to this just for a second before we go to Galatians 5 and 6. Would God ever lean on us? To get our attention and to make sure that we don't leave here without knowing something. It's like God says, one thing you're going to remember tonight. Boom. And he won't let you get away from it. Sometimes we think we're all right. We've been going to church for how many years? I've been here since it started. Good. I have too. I have too. I remember when it started just like you do. Praise the Lord. Some of you kids weren't here when it started because you weren't born. But you're born, it's all you've ever known right here. You're born here, your parents are gone here, you've moved three times since you've been here, but you're still here. It hadn't turned out to be such a bad place. 
had our moments, stumbled along, but God hasn't left us alone. That's a good thing. I said that God hasn't left us alone. He's just always dealing with us, making us go home thinking, man, why is he preaching? I mean, uh, hmm. Remember that story about that ruler came to Jesus once? He had done it all. He kept the law, very proper man. He came to Jesus. He said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? He referred him to the law. He said, well, thou shalt not do this. He began to mention several of the commandments. And Jesus said, well, he said, you do these things, you'll live. He said, well, I've kept these since my youth. Thank you. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute now. One thing. I'll tell you one thing you lack. No, he said it like this. Well, there's one thing you lack. I'm sure there's a lot of other things we could deal with, but right now the supreme thing, the big deal, the issue right here, the priority is one thing that you lack. Your money owns you. You live to make money. You fret when you don't make money. Money has become a god. It gets your time. It gets your attention. You focus on it in all things in your life. What's the profit? And you're controlled by it. The one thing you need to do is give all that you have, sell everything you've got, and give it to the poor. Then you come take up your cross and follow me. You know what happened? He went away sorrowful. One thing he lacked. Isn't it amazing? He kept the law. He did all these things. Very religious man. But one thing he lacked. Wow. And finally this morning in Galatians chapter 5. Have you found it yet? Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. One thing in particular that must be grasped in our life as a necessary fact. Necessary. Galatians 5, 6. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. All male Hebrew kids were circumcised. That was the sign that God gave them as a covenant. Now, there was no magic in it. There was no special anything to it. It was just a sign. That's all it was. But some people thought, well, maybe we do that. Maybe God will respond to us. And he said, look, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what is something then? Well, this one thing, he said, is something. But faith, which worketh how? By love. If love is going to mean what it's supposed to, love has to mean commitment. You can add things, other things to love, but love has to mean that one of its priorities in definition, it has to mean to commit yourself. You love your wife because you're committed to her. It's not because she performs well for you. It's not because she does everything just exactly right. It's not because she always makes your life easy for her. But you took an oath. You said before God and these witnesses that I will love you. And sometimes they say, till death do us part. Which only shows how permanent marriage is intended to be. And it doesn't mean that I quit loving you on the bad days when you're not doing well and I'm really upset with you any more than he always deserves her goodness. 
All you women know that men sometimes can be real aggravating. Not all of them. Yours isn't, but I mean the other men are. And sometimes you wish they would, oh. And the reason you still fix the good supper and the reason you still have the kind words as a Christian lady and the reason you still do the thing that you committed yourself to God to do is because you love God. God holds you to your oath, to your vow. God holds you to that. You took your vow as unto the Lord and you directed the goodness of it to this man. Now, he doesn't deserve your love, but you give it to him because you gave God your word. As unto the Lord is something like that's still in the Bible, as unto the Lord. Well, while you all don't know that, it is. And so you love God when you are committed to God. I mean, with your life and your will. Didn't Jesus say this? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved by my Father. You're committed to doing what he said. I am persuaded that God is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Have you committed it to him? Well, then your life will show it. The way you live will show who you love. We talk about loving Jesus all the time, and yet we act so hateful with other people. We're not committed to God to the place that we love our brother as ourselves. But how can you love God if you don't love your brother? you got to work on it. How can you love the Lord if you don't love His Word? How can a man love his wife if he does not love his commitment to God? She gets better than she deserves because God has got his heart. He gets better than he deserves because God has her heart. Even if he leaves. You can leave if you want to. 1 Corinthians 7 says, if, if they want to go, go. But I am remaining steadfast to my commitment. If I have to live this way the rest of my life, I will not violate my commitment because of this. This is called Commitment. I love God more than I love you. I'm sure a lot of women would like to tell their husband that on some of those days. I'm going to do this right because I love God more than I love you. And you're getting far better than you deserve. And he said, well, you are too. Well, faith that works by love works like this. If you're committed to God, you're committed to the keeping of His Word. If He said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall, my God shall supply all your needs. Whatever you want to call it. Well, whatever the promise is, your commitment to put your hands on that plow, hold fast to that Word, embrace that particular truth until God performs it, means that no matter what happens, I'm in. I'm connected here. I am trusting you because I am committed to your Word. Now, if you try your faith, well, let's do this. We've heard how faith works. There's point one, point two, point three, point four, point five. Let's just do those things. Let's get to go. Okay, I'm going to start confessing. I believe in the stripes of Jesus. Go ahead. I can't say that that's motivated by your love for God. It sounds like more you're motivated by your love for yourself. You know why I want to be healed? Because Jesus secured that for me. 
by the stripes of Jesus, I was healed. And why would I let the devil take away from me what Jesus gave me? Because I surrender to the pressure and everything else. I want to fight. And we have for all these years. I would much rather be well than be sick. I would much rather have a dollar in my pocket than to be broke. I don't need many dollars, just enough. Don't need to be rich. If he wants to do that, that's fine. But I like what I got. I like the relationship. I like the promises. I like the fact that no matter what it is, he said, if you desire it, you ask him for it, he'll give it to you. I claimed an airplane years ago. Oh, nobody does that. Well, I broke the rule, and I got one. I claimed the house and got one. Paid for it. And people were saying, oh, you can't do that. The promise doesn't go that far. You know, my particular connection with the Lord said it did. Oh, you're in some sort of a cult. Well, I don't think so. I take that seriously when somebody says it, but I don't think so. Maybe you're in one. You're denying the Lord, and I'm trying to prove with the Lord that one of us is wrong. What a simple life. My Heavenly Father said, this is what I will do, and you say, I want to do it. And the one thing that stands supreme between you and God is faith. Faith that works by love. He said, when the Son of Man returns, in Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on this earth? That's what he asked. He says, without faith, you can't please God. You can have church and be very religious and active and hope for a reward, but you can't please God without just trusting God, His way. And how does faith come? Hearing by the Word. And in connection with verse 6, you get verse 15 in chapter 6, and we'll close. For in Christ Jesus, he says this again, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but only one thing here, only one thing here is vital, and that's the new birth, being a new creature. Folks, if you've never been born again, none of this is for you. Can I say that again? If you've never been born again, none of this in this book is for you. This book is for believers. A natural man cannot receive it because they are spiritually discerned. God is speaking to us. He has spoken to us for a long, long time. I believe this morning He has spoken to you. I'm not God, but I believe God has directed words to your heart. Whether I said them or not, you heard something. You have an opportunity this morning to grow a little bit more from glory to glory to glory to advance yourself spiritually. He that knoweth groweth. You can't grow without knowledge. But if you know something, you can become something and please God and receive something. But you've got to be born again. And nobody can ever say they're born again if your life has never changed. <clears throat> if you've got the same hang-ups now you had 20 years ago, I do not believe you've been born again. Unless there is something special and unique, which we need to talk about. Call me, maybe. We're here. Citizens of his kingdom. Table is spread before us. We cannot say, we've heard all of this for years. Well, you know what? One thing that Peter wrote, 
One thing I want you to know is one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and God is not slack concerning his promise. If he said it, he's going to do it. Hang on. Amen. What's your priority this morning? How about the kingdom of God? How about organizing your life? How about sitting down and telling yourself, we're going to start doing things different in this life. And if you don't start doing it different, I'm going to put you in a cold shower in the morning. You begin to take control of your life and begin to prioritize some things in your life to where the government of God begins to rule in your heart. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will minister to us this morning from this place and in this place and that we will be blessed and convicted maybe alerted to things in our lives that we will open ourselves back up to you if we've gotten away from you. We know you're not through with us yet and there's still hope for all of us. I pray for anybody in this room who's never been born again. They've never had a complete regeneration of their life that it would happen for them. Or that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit this morning. Or this week, whenever they want to spend time with you. I pray that you will minister to us. Not so that we can become some great unit of people here. But that so that all of us can be a disciple of Jesus. All of us. And be found looking for Jesus when he returns. Because you said it is to those specifically that he said that he would come back again. To those who look for him. Bless us that way. When all these things I ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet? Amen. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord, He is the mighty King, Master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus, my Lord, He's the great
Jesus, my Lord, He's the great shepherd, rock of all ages, almighty God is He. Oh.